Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm joined today by frequent co-host Tony Shang, writer and advisor to Token Daily and Angel Investor, and also here with John Backus. John, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Let's start with a brief introduction. John, what are you up to? How did you get into the into the space? And what are you most excited about in, in the space currently? What, what sort of uh, thoughts are occupying your mind? So I've been dipping in and out of the crypto space since 2013. I was a student at Stanford and I was part of the Stanford Bitcoin group, dropped out to start a company that was originally called BlockScore, and we were doing compliance tools for the blockchain space that ended up just being normal compliance tools, not anything blockchain related. So we we rebranded, been doing that for many years, and then more recently started Bloom, which is a decentralized protocol with a token for decentralized identity and decentralized lending. Uh, and then in the past six months, Crypto has a lot of like hard questions you need to answer. So I've been specifically doing a deep dive into the history of P2P file sharing, you know, from like 1999 to 2006, starting with like Napster and then ending with BitTorrent and using that as like the one historical example of, you know, when decentralization really went mainstream before any, anyone really talked about cryptocurrencies in the mainstream. And I've been trying to extract as much information from back then and sort of relate it to what's happening today. Let's get into, you wrote this really long, great, great post about it. How did you make the connection that, that, um, that we can learn a lot from, from that era and, and what can we learn? Like unpack that a little bit, paint, paint the picture for us. Yeah. So I'm not sure what specifically made me realize that it's a good parallel. I started digging into just for fun. I, I, I had this random thought one weekend that like, the architecture of like mo- like the modern BitTorrent protocol basically makes no sense from a pure technological perspective. Like you wouldn't architect it that way because it's just like very confusing and a lot of a lot of parts are like unnecessarily complicated. And it only makes sense if you view it sort of as like a shadow of the legal system. So like you know each distortion that the legal system adds to like people's desire to share files results in a modification of how the entire system is designed. And as I dug into that stuff more, learned more about like distributed hash tables and stuff that uh, BitTorrents use. And then, you know, I, I tried to, I set a challenge for myself at saying, like, can I construct a narrative for how technology shifted over time, starting with Napster, which was like fairly centralized and then wound up with, you know, modern BitTorrent. And that was very fun. And Basically tracking through how things became more decentralized and less decentralized in that process seemed like an obvious parallel to what's happening in the crypto world today, where there's a lot of questions around like how much should we decentralize? There's a lot of people who sort of view decentralization as this like ideal that we should all aspire to. And, you know, the main lesson was sort of that decentralization is actually a much more practical thing that I think at least for the file sharing era, you know, it was very obvious what things should be decentralized in a way at each step because you're getting this feedback from the legal system. But sort of a long answer, but main thing is sort of what decentralization actually happened and being like, okay, this there's clearly lessons here for the crypto world. Can you walk us through the kind of main milestones of the Napster story? I, I've, I think that's, that's interesting because uh, it sounds like there are, it's almost like lean startup development of a 
uh, system where you start yeah. off one way and then you keep continue adapting it so that it's yeah. resilient to the restrictions that they're trying to get around. Yeah, sure. So yeah, it is sort of like lean startup where, you know, instead of like pivoting, like one company dies and another one like rises from the ashes. But Napster isn't really like, this is one thing I also tr- tried to write about too. Napster is basically where every, where almost all histories of like at least music file sharing start because that's when it started becoming mainstream. But if you dial it back another year or two, you know, like 1997, that's when we had pure centralized resharing. You know, this student at uh, Stanford who just set up a you know server at the university and was sharing files just like through his own server and it used up something like 70% of the university's bandwidth. And, you know, the RIAA, the, you know, Recording Industry Association of America, even back then sent them, you know, pretty quick takedowns saying you can't do this. So even by 1997, they sort of established like, you can't have a centralized distribution mechanism for free music. And so what people started doing instead, this is actually still before Napster's, they had these like MP3 search engines. So you'd go to some website like mp3board.com and you'd search for a song that you wanted to download. And it would actually be showing you a list of results of files that are hosted in other websites. And the way that worked was sort of like those websites, the host websites would be taken down all the time, but then the search engine would just stop serving them. And so it sort of added this like continuity where you could always go to these like search engine websites and, you know, you sort of had this effective decentralization uh, in the hosting because those things could be sort of more ephemeral. And that sort of like foreshadows how Napster ended up implementing some things where, uh, you know, there was a centralized index of, you know, whose computers have what files. And uh, when you did a search, it would specifically check which hosts are online. Too, and then you can just download from any of the hosts, or their files are actually still online. So that's sort of how you get to Napster. I can walk through how you then get to the architecture of like the second wave, which is like Kazaa and eDonkey, and then sort of the third wave, which is uh, BitTorrent. Yeah, please do. Cool. So, you know, Napster first of all was incredibly popular. I did just like dove into the numbers a while back. I don't remember them right now, but basically, especially if you adjust for how much people use the internet. Napster's growth from like 1999 to 2001 was at least as impressive or more impressive than Snapchat's growth. So this, you know, this is sort of like this ridiculous breakout success app, which is why we saw like dozens and dozens of people trying to build their own Napsters after that. But Napster was also like taken to court like pretty quickly. And basically the, the central issue was that the centralized index of who has what files meant the law that, you know, Napster was able to ban people if they wanted to, if they could filter uh, content if they wanted to, and the courts sort of proved that they they chose not to do that. And basically, Napster, it was demonstrated that they, you know, were violating what's called secondary liability laws for copyright, which means they're not actually violating copyright, but they're helping others facilitate it. And so that got them shut down. And so the next wave sort of said, all right, if we can't have a centralized server, you know, if, if having the ability to ban users and filter searches is what results in a a business being shut down, then we just will sort of decentralize that part of the application and, you know, put it out into the ether. And then, you know, now if we're brought in the court, we can say, oh, we don't control that. That's not part of our software. And that that, that actually didn't work. But you could launch something like Kazaa or eDonkey or, you know, like LimeWire and stuff like that. 
where each of these has their own product protocol behind them that can't be moderated uh, like centrally. Uh, and those lasted for years. And that, that, that helped a lot. Basically, in the US, these protocols basically had to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court didn't even want to really destroy these things based on the numbers alone. So they, they didn't want to, they even had some like academics basically come in and do different measurements. And they had some ridiculous results, like 99% of searches on the Kazaa network are for infringing content. But they didn't want to sort of do a like, trial by numbers. It's actually pretty, pretty uh, forward thinking on the Supreme Court. They, they said that any new technology is going to be predominantly at first used for sort of illicit or sketchy uh, uses. And they sort of knew that if they killed these protocols by the numbers, then something like the iPod would probably also be killed. So instead, they, they introduced this idea of inducement, which basically means that if it can be proved that while creating your product, you basically created it in order to sort of appeal to music pirates and to invite them to pirate music on your platform, then you can sort of be treated as if it was a centralized search and you're liable. And so that killed off basically everything in the space except for BitTorrent. BitTorrent is the only company that didn't do any marketing or have any like anything really out there in the public that suggested that, you know, they created this thing for pirates. If you went to the BitTorrent website back in like 2003, it literally didn't, didn't even mention for vials and download them using BitTorrent. It like, had this whole thing where it talked about how BitTorrent's the best new way to host a website. And, you know, BitTorrent actually did, like, went out in the end. So it, it, it became more and more popular. At some point, there was something crazy, like 65% of global internet traffic. And, you know, it's a very awkward structure compared to something like LimeWire. Like, LimeWire, you could just open it up, do a search for some song, and then download it immediately within the client. You know, in order to use BitTorrent, especially if you never used it before, you have to, like, download this client that doesn't let you search anything, which is sort of confusing. And then you have to go to some like sketchy website like the Pirate Bay, which have these sort of, you know, offensive ads on the side and then, you know, search for something and download this tiny file, which, you know, I think for a lot of people is confusing. And then you have to open that file on the client and then you're downloading something finally. So it's a much more cumbersome process. And, you know, but that separation of the client and the uh, search engine is basically this legal distinction that allows BitTorrent to operate, that sort of matters just as much as the decentralized aspect of everything here. But yeah, BitTorrent won out actually by it being a little bit less decentralized in the places where it didn't need to be, and instead doing this legal structuring in order to sort of you know, avoid the things that ended up killing Kazaa and LimeWire and other companies like Grokster. So yeah, that's sort of the path from centralized to decentralized. That's really fascinating. It has a lot of themes in common with some of the stuff that's happening in crypto now. When you were talking about what the Supreme Court was using to judge whether to shut something down. Inducement. Inducement, yeah. It, it reminds me of Augur's launch, where people on the side are speculating that most uses for Augur will be for markets that you're not legally allowed to do now. But mm -hmm. the way that Augur is positioned doesn't say anything about that at all and the protocol is completely separated from the clients that are being built for it and then the other thing that i thought was interesting is the impact of regulation on the the accessibility for users of these things there's this because of the regulations that enforcement there were certain versions of this that were available to users and others that weren't and so all things equal like you, you might have imagined 
a future where people just use that Napster or an MP3 search engine. And that, that was it. If, if nobody really tried to shut anything down, but you know, we reached a point that met the bar for what regulators were okay with. And, and that's like, it, because of everything else is not allowed that that you, level of UX is what everybody is using. Yeah. You know, one question that I tried to answer, which I still don't feel like I have a perfect answer for, but you know, one big question that you have to ask when you look at the BitTorrent world is why didn't the search and file discovery aspect of you know file sharing end up decentralized? Uh, we still basically, you know, if, if you're using a public tracker in order to find like m- music or movies to, to pirate, you're still going to something like the Pirate Bay, which has incredibly been around for more than 10 years, even though the founders have gone to jail and, you know, it's been taken down and raided many, many times. Like, why isn't this thing decentralized? That seems like, you know, a perfect case where you want to avoid the law by adding an order. And the answer is not clear, but it might be uh, a mixture of the user interface being much worse if it ends up decentralized, or maybe it's actually just a very hard problem to create a really good decentralized search engine. Or another answer might be that by the time we got to this stage, like maybe 2008 or 2009, you know, Netflix and Spotify were starting to take off and, you know, that close enough use case where it's like, okay, I'll pay, you know, a few dollars a month in order to get access to everything basically meant that people no longer had the, the need to learn the more complicated stuff in order to get access to files. So, you know, in, in like 2004, 2005, people were willing to go through all the BS involved in learning how to use like the Pirate Bay and then BitTorrent in order to get access to a movie because, you know, they had to pay a bunch of money otherwise or it wasn't easy to get them. But today, the average user might not be willing to spend like 20, 30 minutes in order to learn how to use new decentralized tech just in order to avoid using Netflix, something like that. So it's yeah. unclear, but yeah, like decentralization just sort of stops at a certain point. I think basically based on whether people are willing to tolerate the additional discomfort in order for that next wave to hit. Well, let's dig into that use case, actually. I mean, it seems like that would be a meaty enough opportunity for somebody to tackle creating some kind of protocol to index torrents. What, has, has anybody tried to do that? And if not, why? Yeah, so there there are a bunch of attempts. Uh, so I'm not going to remember all the names off the top of my head. Uh, one company that's actually very interesting, and one thing I love to find is people that have been interested in like crypto tokens or something before the actual hype phase hit. It started around the time where we, we were in this like file sharing boom. It's like the semi-academic project, but they actually ship like real clients you can use. I did create sort of a decentralized search using a gossip network where basically you can discover different torrents within the Tribbler network just by contacting other users. And, you know, I've tried it out and I can't really tell whether uh, the UX just isn't polished enough and it could be way better or if, you know, that the... There's some like fundamental limitations there. There are some ideas that whenever you decentralize something, you're inherently introducing, you know, things that need a lot more fault tolerance or introducing more latency. Things can go up and down and uh, you have different availability. So there's an idea that in this case, decentralized search is always going to be a little bit slower or maybe be able to, you know, pull up a little bit. There are other attempts to, to sort of like crawl the, the, BitTorrent DHT. So, you know, this is the uh, distributed hash table that holds about, like, all the torrent information that 
is associated with things that are uh, uploaded to stuff like the Pirate Bay. So there are some projects too that sort of try to crawl the DHT and download uh, tons and tons of information on, on like all the different torrents that are stored in the DHT. And then sort of once you have all the torrent information, you can then do quick local searches against what torrents are out there. You know, so that, that would be a bit faster once it's done indexing. But then that's sort of similar to, you know, if you download like the Augur app today, you have to start it off by doing this big sync with the blockchain. And, you know, in both cases, it just introduces the question of, okay, how many users are willing to sit through a 30-minute sync, for example, against the BitTorrent DHT or, you know, the blockchain in order to then use the application once it's ready. And that gets back to the idea that once you have something roughly convenient enough like Netflix or Spotify, then, you know, maybe they don't have a reason anymore to wait 30 minutes in order to then just do a search to find out if there's anything there. Yeah. I mean, just just hearing the way you describe it, I can't help but feel like if you apply this lens to all of the projects in this space, m- most wouldn't pass the, like, people actually want to use this test. Like, would you, are you pretty pessimistic about a lot of the projects that are trying to build you know, decentralized alternatives for this and that? Yeah, so I, I was joking to a friend recently that I'm, I, I'm starting to feel like the, the universal app group for crypto, where everyone that's not into crypto, you know, doesn't agree with me, because I actually am very bullish on the usage of cryptocurrency and decentralized technology to build interesting new things. But I also feel like I'm starting to strongly disagree with a lot of the ecosystem. And I think, you know, a very good application of this sort of stuff is probably more so on the lines of, you know, something like Augur, where there's this sort of, like, flirting with the boundary of the law like you talked about before, where uh, people expect a certain use case that you know not might that might not be as legally viable if a centralized company did it, but you know using decentralized technology and some other legal structuring becomes possible. And you know I don't know of that many companies that are doing that sort of stuff today, but I think the actually highly used things in the space will be be more like that and less like just decentralized versions of things that you can used even if they're fully centralized if that makes sense yeah so like you know you could imagine uh the john backus accelerator where you only fund things where there's already clear product market fit for some use case that continues to get shut down and then you build you build out the minimally decentralized version of it that will allow users to to accomplish that use case and then just go from there yeah i mean maybe i'll start that one day uh it could either make a decent decent amount of money or no money because it's sort of still unclear as to you know how, how well you can find those things. The clear takeaway with the like file sharing era is that you know all the companies before BitTorrent basically like sort of kind of destroyed you know hundreds of million dollars of hundreds of millions of dollars like industries like the music industry and the movie industry just so that they can make like a million dollars a year on ads. And even then it was a huge struggle for them to make ads off of it. Uh, and then, you know, BitTorrent did all this stuff in order to like open source their protocol and have all these open source clients and they didn't run their own search engine too. And so BitTorrent even more so, like basically all the piracy that happens via BitTorrent, you know, that they don't see a dime from it, which, you know, it's part of why, you know, the industries didn't go after them and try to sue them that, you know, that they sort of knew that, you know, even if they kill BitTorrent the company, there's the protocol still out there, it's open source and there's a hundred different clients. And the only answer I really have here is that tokenization might actually make it possible so that you can have this sort of like 
this isn't a great term, but sort of like a two-faced sort of company approach where, you know, you have all this stuff behind the scenes where it's like, actually, people will probably use BitTorrent in order to pirate Star Wars, but officially, it's for downloading Ubuntu. And, you know, tokenization might be one way to, to bridge that gap and sort of make it so that, like, if people are using the pirate use case, then they're using the token and maybe the token goes up in price or something like that. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, regulation that's still unclear here. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of stuff that still needs to be proven for tokens, of course. Yeah. What limitations of the analogy do you think exist? And broadly, there's sort of, there's some people who say that, you know, we look too much to the history of, of the internet and software to predict where crypto is going. And instead, we should look at the history of money, which paints a much different picture. I'm curious in terms of what limitations of the analogy you think exist and what sort of pushback you've you've heard from from others. Yeah, so while writing a lot of this stuff, I've been fairly heads down and I've gotten clearly a bunch of pushback from people on Twitter that are of the Bitcoin maximalist uh, variety that say that we shouldn't settle the history of money. Overall, I think my view is that like looking at the history of all these different things is valuable and you know, if you understand them deeply, you can sort of pick and choose and figure out which ones fit and what doesn't. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I'm still grappling as are we should carry over ideas from the file sharing era or whether it's a terrible idea is sort of ideas around robustness and uh, availability and, you know, how tolerant people will be of like mistakes within the system. So for, you know, for file sharing, you know, it didn't really matter that much if like a search didn't go through. Or, uh, you know, at a certain time of day, you like couldn't use your favorite torrent search engine in order to discover some content. And, you know, like the, it's actually pretty interesting. If you look into, uh, all the different stuff that the RIAA did to sort of stop piracy outside of legal tactics, they did all this stuff to sort of like using the, the technology or they, they, you know, added a bunch of garbage data to the BitTorrent DHT and, you know, that they, they like exploited some vulnerabilities and like Kazaa's hashing mechanism in order to uh, introduce corrupt, corrupted downloads, which would make people like less likely to use Kazaa because a bunch of different downloads would fail after they waited for them for like 20 minutes or something like that. So, you know, basically for the file sharing era, it's clear that, you know, even if you have these like corrupted downloads and searches that don't go through and stuff like that, it's mainly fine because people are like, oh, you know, I'll just try again. Or... You know, at the end of the day, you're just trying to download a movie or something like that. But, you know, obviously with money, if like, you know, you pay someone and it goes through and then all of a sudden like it gets reversed, like, you know, 30 minutes later or a day later, then that's really not okay, especially if it happens a lot. But, and this is one of the, the things that is more controversial that the question, like the, the question I actually don't know how to answer yet is whether it's okay if it happens like, you know, if for example, one transaction got reversed per day, but that was it. And so just like a little bit of hugginess or something like that. Like my view is sort of that the real users of things like Bitcoin, people trying to use it as a store of value in like Venezuela or something like that, you know, they are actually viewing Bitcoin against alternatives that are really, really bad. And so similar to file sharing, they might be tolerant of a little bit of bugginess or, you know, like hiccups within the system. But at the same time, we probably still should design these systems to be as robust as possible. So I'm not really sure there. You know, main answer is that this this question around robustness for for money seems obviously much more important. And if you could probably make some parallels or some 
assumptions about the crypto world, looking at the robustness from the file sharing era, uh, and possibly be really, really wrong. So you, you touched uh, previously on uh, maybe tokens might allow these uh, protocols to capture value. And you've also written about, what if you actually added a t- token to, to BitTorrent? Can you talk a little bit about your views on tokens and maybe just start with thinking on what if BitTorrent had a token? Yeah, sure thing. So, I mean, I think one of the really interesting aspects of the file sharing like era that a lot of people don't know about is that Zuko from Zcash, uh, Bram from BitTorrent, and some other you know fairly well-known cypherpunks like Jim McCoy were working on this thing in like 1999 through like 2000 or 2001 called Mojo Nation. And what they were building actually looks a lot. Uh, IPFS is trying to do today. They're trying to build this emergent file storage system where you know you upload it, you know, a file to it, and it gets you know, spread out across a bunch of machines. And then there's actually this DefCon talk, like from like DefCon Six or something like that, in 2000, where you know Jim McCoy is talking about how Mojo Nation will be this unstoppable decentralized file storage where if you store stuff on your machine, you can earn tokens. And you know this is 2000, so he said. You can even cash out those tokens to something like PayPal or eBay and, you know, make money off of storing files. And so this is like, you know, many years before Bitcoin, even more years before Ethereum and the token craze, these guys are talking about decentralized file storage and, you know, decentralized incentives and tokens and liquidation and stuff like that, which is very interesting. And if you actually look at some discussion on Nick Zabo's website from 2007, there's this whole sort of like post-mortem discussion between Jim McCoy, Zuko, and uh, Nick Zabo, where I think Jim McCoy said something like, the smartest thing that Bram Cohen did was remove the token and create BitTorrent and basically calibrate the incentives of the system to what users actually wanted. So one one assumption that Mojo Nation made that was sort of didn't work out is that they assumed that people might leave their machines on all day, you know, storing files and seeding files and sharing them to other people so that they can have basically unlimited file da- like downloads and like fast feeds when they get home, something like that. And it turns out that people actually, for file sharing, mainly want to just open the client to download something and then close it right away when they're done. So what BitTorrent does is it has this thing called a uh, uh, game-theoretic tit-for-tat mechanism. So basically... The way it works is that when you're downloading a file, even if it's like a very new file, you know, someone just uploaded it, fired bear, something like that. If you and nine other people are downloading it all at once and there's just, you know, the original uploader on there, then everyone who's downloading, uh, you know, everyone's downloading from each other, they download in pieces and everyone sort of keeps track of who else is uploading to them. And so people will sort of cut off other downloaders if they're not up fast to them. So everyone has this incentive through this much more simple like game theory to upload as fast as possible to everyone else in the BitTorrent swarm in order to basically maximize their own download speed. And you know, this incentive only really applies when people are downloading the file. It doesn't really carry over to incentivize people to seed after they finish downloading. But you know, so that that's the first aspect of like how should we think about tokenization, you know, first of all, before people were excited about tokens and also, you know, what can happen if you have like a really heavyweight token versus 
you know, a comparatively lighter weight system like this tit for tat mechanism. So I think the next interesting way to think about this stuff here is to look at like private BitTorrent trackers. So if you've this music site uh, called Oink in the past, or, you know, another very popular one called like what.cd, these things were invite only. So you had to get access to them. And, you know, I think like Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails called these things like the, I'm going to botch this, but one of the greatest music libraries that's ever been created or something like that. I used to get uh, like rare CDs from libraries and rip them to flack to get get points on those things. Uh, yeah, that, that that's a perfect example. These things are crazy. And they had all these ridiculous standards on, they, they had like 10 pages worth of rules on how you had to rip music. And people would actually do stuff like, you know, if you went to like the, the, the page for like Taylor Swift or something, every single album, there'd be like a highest possible bit rate, flack vinyl rip of like the album. You know, for people that are willing to download two gigabytes worth of, you know, lossless music just so that they can get the highest quality possible, you know, music for her. But yeah, anyway, I was going to continue back to the point. So, you know, all these private trackers have basically a, within their system, once they're invited, they have a centralized rule for forcing an upload-download ratio. So the idea is like, you know, if you download five gigabytes from the system and you've only uploaded or, you know, from, from other users and you've only uploaded like 100 megabytes, then you're probably going to get banned because you're nowhere near a one-to-one upload-download ratio. So usually you want to at least aim for, you know, five gigabytes downloaded, okay, five gigabytes uploaded. But then the ideal is to, you know, maybe upload a bunch of your own stuff or to, you know, seed a bunch of files for a really long time so that you can get for that would be like I've uploaded 100 gigabytes. I've only downloaded five. So, you know, over the next year or two, I can just download whatever I want and not really worry about it. And if you think about the concept of an upload buffer, you know, still within the centralized system, what we're really talking about in that example before is that you have like 95 gigabytes worth of download credit and you can, you know, just burn through that with downloads. And the interesting thing is that you can also on a lot of these sites earn this like upload credit you know, denominated in terms of like gigabytes through different means. So for example, for some private trackers, if you donate money to the system, then they'll credit you with basically fake upload credit, but it'll increase your buffer. There's also on all of these sites, there's bounty systems that'll say something like, you know, I want a vinyl lossless black rip of the new Eminem album. If anyone uploads this, I will like pay them in terms of my upload credit. In which case, like maybe I give one gigabyte worth of upload credit to the uploader and other people can sort of pile on so they can make these really valuable uploads. That, that was like that was one of the coolest features of these private trackers, because there's really there's really nothing else like that on the Internet. And it's, it's something that I wanted to see more of in this wave of innovation around blockchains. But maybe, yeah, I'm sure you're getting to this point, but I'm curious your take on you know which parts of these are a good fit for the technologies that we're using now and, and what isn't. Yeah, yeah. Getting to the point, you know, the fact that you can, that actually all that matters is this upload buffer, that you can earn it through different means and whatever. You know, basically what we're talking about here is a centralized token denominated in terms of gigabytes. And you can imagine, you know, if we decentralize that upload buffer, you know, so that it works between different websites and maybe enforce it through the protocol, then now we have this nice incentive 
incentive system to you know, upload to others after you're finished downloading that can work between different websites. And that becomes very interesting and you can abstract it more and sort of, you know, we stop talking about this in terms of upload credits and start talking about some sort of torrent token. Then, you know, basically what you can think about here is we're, you know, we're all of a sudden now thinking about, you know, a token within the decentralized that we've had. And so, you know, other questions there come, come like pretty quickly, like how do you deal with new users to the system? Well, these private trackers, what they do is they just, when you're very new, you're allowed to have a little bit of a, a deficit and they just want you to sort of earn it back quickly. Within a decentralized BitTorrent token, you can imagine something like maybe other clients allow people to sort of like receive a short-term token loan where it's sort of like, I know that you can't pay me any BitTorrent tokens right now in order to download this, but once you download it, when you earn, earn some tokens, they should automatically go back to me. Then you know, if we go a little bit further and sort of think about this more in terms of you know, how else can a token improve BitTorrent as a protocol? You can imagine decentralized systems like this bounty system that, that we saw in every private tracker, but using some sort of consensus mechanism, some sort of or- oracle mechanism in order to sort of, in uh, a decentralized fashion, say, you know, I want a lossless ri- rip of the new uh, M&M album. And, you know, if someone fulfills it on any torrent tracker, then you can earn some, like, torrent tokens in order for sharing that and by making this a decentralized token you get other interesting effects like people would have the incentive to sort of arbitrage between different torrent trackers so you know we've got the pirate bay and we've got different uh public torrent trackers like you know, I, I don't know which other ones exist but for example that back in the day there was like mini nova you know that the, if a new movie or something pops up on one of them a really easy way to earn Torrent tokens would be to then upload that same data once you downloaded it, upload it to, uh, you know, mini Nova or something like that after it was just put on the pirate bay. And so people just incentive to arbitrage between the trackers. And effectively what they're doing there is spreading the availability and increasing the availability of like these files are sh- being shared within these networks. So we've gotten a, a decentralized incentive to fulfill content requests. We have a decentralized incentive to sort of increase availability. And I think the final thing that gets interesting there, this is taking it one step further, is making this token, you know, liquidatable via, you know, an exchange. Well, now people have sort of a profit motive in order to contribute back to the BitTorrent protocol. So what you can imagine happening there is right now this already sort of happens on private trackers. But if something like Eminem's new album pops up as a brand new upload, then, you know, a lot of people. But a lot of people who are trying to in, improve their upload buffer will also download it uh, just so that they can then upload to a bunch of other people that are very likely going to download it. So they're downloading it just so that they can earn upload credit. Well, if you have a profit motive to see because you can earn torrent tokens, then you know that gets pretty interesting because then you know maybe someone sets up a like high speed, high bandwidth server and then writes a little program that. It looks at new torrents and figures out what can be downloads them really fast and sees them to everyone else. Right now, that's a profit motive, basically, to you know contribute really fast bandwidth, commercial bandwidth to this decentralized system. And you can imagine other knock-on effects too. So, you know, the race to sort of get on the popular content and seed it would uh, probably be saturated pretty quick. But another thing you can do is look for torrents that are about to die, so maybe have one seeder and have been 
around for a while, but you know, people will probably want it somewhere in the future. So this might be something like, you know, maybe, you know, a video of like Seinfeld bloopers or something like that, where it's, you know, it's not Seinfeld itself. So it's not super high demand, but you know, people love Seinfeld. So they'll want it later. Well, someone could easily write a program to try to find content like this. It's about to die and then throw it in really, really cheap storage. It's like, you know, on Amazon Glacier, you can store something like a gigabyte of data for something like 10 years and pay like a cent. It's ridiculous. So people have this, in this case, have a very strong incentive to download content that other people are going want to want in the future and store it very cheaply and then seed it later to people when they actually want it. So by introducing this profit motive with the token, you know, we have this commercial incentive then to, you know, add more bandwidth to the benefit of everyone uh, to the network so the downloads are faster. We also have this incentive to long, long-term try to store stuff that people might want later, uh, which, you know, increases the content within the network. And then finally, we have this bounty system that gives people an incentive to upload content that others want. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of features that I think would come from a BitTorrent token are sort of like, you know, these private trackers. Awesome. So, well, so, so, how, can you help us generalize this a little bit? Like, what are what are the lessons that people thinking about building projects or existing projects can learn from this? Yeah. So, I think one of the main things that I felt very strongly after sort of walking through, you know, what a token within the BitTorrent protocol would mean. So, one one thing that's very obvious is that you uh, very quickly end up with this general currency that allows to barter with these goods. So you add bandwidth, storage, the value of the content, maybe even uh, how fast other people seed it to you. And within the BitTorrent system, at least, this is actually a very valuable set of things to sort of provide a generalizing means of exchanging between. So let's see. I mean, one comment right away here would be that, you know, obviously back in the day when people were trying to do this sort of like create a crypto token before crypto tokens were a thing in order to build like Mojo Nation. There was no arbitrary distinction between a utility token and a security token. It was all focused on like, what is this helping us barter between and whatnot? And if you look at what BitTorrent might look like with a token, and I think if you really get it, then it becomes very clear that a token can be very useful for balancing and you know, the, the security token versus utility token thing would be an afterthought, I think, once you design that system. So besides that, I mean, I think that one of the lessons, at least from Mojo Nation and everything they did versus BitTorrent and the fact that BitTorrent worked uh, and Mojo Nation didn't, part of that is just timing. You know, the Mojo Nation guys were super early, but I think it's also maybe, maybe important to consider that you know, the, the more extreme you get with the incentive balancing system within your decentralized protocol, the harder it gets to implement. So, you know, you can sort of imagine this game theoretic model that BitTorrent has is sort of in the grand scheme, a bit uh, simpler of a market mechanism than a generalized token within the system that you can't cash out. Okay, so that'd just be a token that within the system balances incentives, but you can't make money off of it. And then turning that into a token that you can actually make money off of makes it even more complicated. 
And so, you know, with, with normal products, we already sort of have this idea of like product market fit, which means, you know, the desired use cases out there that we haven't figured out yet. I think that it could be very possible that the more extreme the, you know, financial instrument within the decentralized protocol, the more difficult it is to find this sort of like decentralized product market fit, which means that I think it's possible that decentralized apps might, you know, just be an order of magnitude harder in terms of finding product market fit, because you sort of have to find this UX level like product market fit and then also the product market fit for the token, which inherently is assuming uh, a bunch of things about user behavior, but is this totally separate thing you need to calibrate. That's right. So, yeah, so I, 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 you know, I wrote this long post uh, called, you know, resistant protocols, how decentralization evolves, where I did the whole walkthrough from like 97 to you know, 2006, where starting with centralized MP3 sharing and ending with BitTorrent. One thing that people really latched onto in there is this term I use within it called minimum viable decentralization. So I wrote a, a post, an independent post on that, which is a bit shorter. And, you know, the idea there is sort of like, you know, the amount of decentralization you should add to your product is uh, the minimum amount in order to make it legally viable. And if you add any more than that, you know, decentralization becomes a becomes like a weakness, not a strength. And so, for example, the, the interesting thing about BitTorrent after when it sort of like took over after, you know, the, the second wave of like Kazaa and Grokster and other things like that sort of died. The interesting thing about BitTorrent is, you know, it's actually less decentralized at the time than something like Kazaa. Kazaa had a fully decentralized search system or, you know, sort of like a federated search system. But, you know, it was a sort of big protocol, but it got shut down for a bunch of reasons. One of them being that, you know, in, in their case, like Australian courts eventually said something like, well, you could have installed a you know, copyright filter in your client and you didn't do that. And, you know, BitTorrent had all this legal structuring a different structuring within the protocol where, you know, that the legal structuring being something like coming like the Pirate Bay runs the actual, you know, illicit search engine for content. You know, the BitTorrent company doesn't actually do that. But when BitTorrent took over, when Kazawa, you know, died, the BitTorrent tracker, which is the, uh, this is basically, you know, centralized software that, that someone runs that's associated with a torrent that actually helps like match uploaders and downloaders for a certain torrent. So at the time, you know, there, there was no widely used distributed hash table for each torrent that maybe you would download from the Pirate Bay. It was then just like the Pirate Bay's tracker that was actually coordinating file exchange. So compared to, compared to Kazaa, uh, BitTorrent is actually less decentralized, which is sort of weird to think about. So they're less decentralized, yet they won out. And that's partially because the legal structuring and legal distinctions and their behavior, the BitTorrent behavior in the past mattered more than the actual decentralization aspect. Then a separate point here is that, you know, if you look back at like news clips and something like 2000, you know, when, when Napster was, you know, fighting the courts, which is like insanely popular, there are a lot of news clips that sort of looked at different projects and sort of, you know, a lot of them go something like this. They say, Napster's scary, but this new thing called Freenet which is this totally anonymous file sharing system that's like totally unstoppable is, you know, coming up and is going to be like, it's going to really be hard to deal with. And this thing, it's called Freenet. It did pop up in, in 2000 and it's actually still being developed. It's, 
got this crazy, it's called garlic routing. It's got this crazy anonymization system. And, you know, it, it does this like distributed file storage, sort of like IPFS where it puts little, you know, in, in their case, they put different pieces of the file in the network. And, and, and the like anonymization aspect of uh, Freenet is, I think, even stronger than something like Tor because no single node within the network really knows like you know, what the position is in the network, if that makes sense. And so Freenet is like, has this decentralized or a distributed file storage and this like strong anonymity offering. And you know, the reality ended up being though, that when you use it, it takes like a minute to like even respond to a search uh, within the system because it's, you know, has to do this crawl between all the different peers and there's all this anonymization, anonymization stuff that, you know, isn't really necessary in order to create the sort of file sharing that people wanted when they went to something like the Pirate Bay. And so while people were really scared of these like fully anonymous, fully decentralized technologies back in 2000 when Napster was in court, uh, the reality was that uh, those things didn't take off because they traded in usability way too aggressively in exchange for these like, you know, resilient properties that weren't actually really necessary. Another small example is that for a lot of different decentralized file sharing protocols, so like there's like this product called eDonkey, which is a, a fairly popular and this open source fork of it called Emule, which is also popular. But for, you know, Emule and then a bunch of other popular file sharing systems like BitTorrent, people create these I2P forks of them, which where I2P is sort of like Tor, but it's not as popular and it's actually, it's, it is designed to be uh, usable with things like file sharing, which Tor is not. And so people have always been trying to add it to uh, file sharing applications because they're like, like especially when Kazaa was a big thing, the RIAA was like suing people who use these systems, trying to get people to be like scared of uh, doing file sharing. And so a bunch of pretty smart people were like, well, if we made these things anonymous, then, you know, that would be better for everyone. So we got forks like iMule, you know, which added I2P to Emule, and we got I2P versions of BitTorrent. But again, people didn't really use them, and they never really took off. And I think that's basically because for most people, it's I mean, it's a combination of a lot of people, non-technical people, don't know these things exist. And you can't, you know, they're not really usable unless everyone knows they exist. But also, users who might have known that they exist, you know, there's still sort of this gut feeling of like, all right, even if 2,000 people have been sued in, in the U.S. for file sharing, there's millions of people doing this. So what are the odds that I actually go to court for downloading this specific file? So I think there's an incentive problem there, too. So the theme here is sort of, uh, you know, the people that take decentralization as like a rallying call for, you know, we should just do as much of this as possible because this is the way forward. They're probably going down some sort of trap and not thinking about the fact that each little piece of decentralization you add adds this big usability penalty uh, to the system. And it really needs to be calibrated against what do you actually need to do legally to survive? And then after that, you should just build a normal product. Those are mainly my thoughts there. I think that is a very sensible way to view development in the space. But the vast majority of projects are kind of jumping to the end right off the bat. And they're like, hey, what if we had a fully censorship-resistant, like distributed version of use case X? Do you feel like we should stop doing that completely and just start doing something a little bit more methodical and if so it makes total sense to me if so are there any is there anything we lose from 
not going for like superlative censorship resistance and distribution and like permissionlessness, all those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I I, I think that that's basically right. That at the end of the day, like, and also for all for a lot of these things, where where I'm sort of calling for like less decentralization. I feel like I'm in a weird spot too, because this is, these are sort of like claims that you can make as like a crypto outsider and be like, oh, we don't need decentralization. And for a long time, I was sort of like, well, no, decentralization is actually good. And then now it's sort of circling back to this stuff. But yeah, I mean, it all depends on the use case. So for example, if people are building Bitcoin wallets or whatever to be used, then it's adding things like Tor and Tor bridges and other mechanisms to sort of actually be resilient to censorship and however else people uh, in those areas are receiving pushback for using Bitcoin. Like that, then you actually want to add more decentralization and like obfuscation or whatever because you're actually you have an active adversary that you can sort of very specifically know how to fight back against them. But for the rest of the stuff, I I just think it matters a lot to think about what the audience is you're building for. So a lot of these really radical, really permissionless, fully decentralized, you know, totally unstoppable, that might be a good thing if you're building it for someone like Edward Snowden in order to communicate with like Glenn Greenwald or something like that, where, you know, there are a handful of people in the world who have incredibly sensitive like communication and otherwise like internet needs and need these really extreme systems. But if you're build, building something for the mainstream consumer, I, I I don't believe in a reality where, you know, even five or six years from now, the average, like, software computer user or whatever that's, like, non-technical is going to think about decentralization and be like, I want to use that instead. I think it's, I think this stuff is going to be be behind the scenes uh, no matter what. And at the end of the day, if you're going for mainstream, then all this stuff needs to be a calculation as to, like, you know, what penalties am I going to be paying in order to, you know, add some decentralization here? How does that affect the end user? And being very conscious about like every concession you make, basically, because if you decentralize too much, then your system probably going to be a little bit slower and harder to use than a more centralized alternative. Yeah, uh, I think that's a pretty good good place, like message to end on. You know, going back to the basics, thinking about what the users actually want to do and designing the the products and services in such a way that they are maximizing the uh the usability for those users yeah i totally agree sweet um john any last words <laughs> where can people find you on, on the internet anything you want to leave leave the audience with what, what should they expect sure yeah i tweet a lot about crypto and non-crypto things that uh uh, at Bacchus on Twitter, so B-A-C-K-U-S. I also post on Medium fairly frequently about uh, different crypto things. So medium.com slash at sign jbacchus. And yeah, I mean, still figuring a lot of things out in the space, but trying to learn a lot and then also trying to say things specifically that I don't think are already part of the conversation. So yeah. This was a pleasure. Uh, have a great rest of your Sunday and talk to you soon. Yeah, talk soon. Thanks, guys. Okay. All right, see you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.